0: Welcome to Irish Exit Everything. My name is Frank and no human is illegal. Let's just start by agreeing to that. No human is illegal, especially on stolen land. No human is illegal, but current power structures would have us think otherwise. And because no human is illegal, it follows that borders are bullshit. Borders in a symbolic sense are bullshit in terms of citizenship. If you're from the other side of a border, you don't belong on this side of the border and therefore you have no rights. And borders in a very tangible sense are bullshit. Border walls stop the movement of people and detention camps hold people in horrible, deadly conditions, put kids in cages. That's the real crisis, not people moving from place to place, which everyone has the right to do. But the U.S. government and private interests increasingly militarize the border for the sake of national security. The government funnels more and more and more billions and billions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, into border protections. Funding for ICE and Border Patrol has tripled since 2003. Yes, this trend spans both Democratic and Republican parties. And for what? National security from what? Folks being displaced from their homes or fleeing harmful situations? Folks just looking for work? Folks taking agency over their lives and making the difficult decision to move? Is that really a security threat? Oh, you think immigrants are coming to take our jobs? Well, what about the apparent labor shortage in this country? Your xenophobic talking point doesn't add up. Plus, the false narrative of illegal immigrants swarming here as the issue completely ignores why folks globally are faced with the decision to migrate in the first place. Oftentimes, it's because imperial powers like the US. Are extracting the labor and resources and profits from the global south and leaving communities with nothing and hoarding that wealth behind a border wall. And here's the thing, if the point of a border is to stop illegal immigration, it's not working. Militarizing borders and criminalizing immigration doesn't stop immigration, just like criminalizing abortions doesn't stop abortions. Criminalizing something, that people are going to do anyway, and have every right to do, just makes it more dangerous for those people to do it. And what we really need to understand is that criminalization is an intentional choice, because it's about control. It's not about stopping people from coming into the country, it's about having leverage over them when they're here to control their labor. Someone who's at risk of arrest and deportation at any moment can be forced to work in dangerous conditions for next to no pay. And without citizenship, and the rights that come with that, it's very difficult to demand higher wages and better conditions, which they deserve. A border is a very profitable physical and rhetorical wall that divides working people who are all just trying to live a decent life. It's time to imagine and build a world without borders which necessitates dismantling capitalism, because capitalism cannot allow for the free movement of people. And so for this episode in the Exit Strategy series, I want to talk to someone who can explain much better than me what a transnational movement against borders looks like. That's why I'll be talking to Justin Akers-Chacon. He's a professor, author, activist, and much more in the movements for migrant justice and border abolition. Here's our conversation. Justin, 100,000 welcomes to you. Thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here.
0: Pleasure's all mine. And I'd actually like to get started by getting a sense of uh, your background as an activist. Like, how did you get into activism and organizing? How long have you been doing it? What are you up to now?
1: Yeah, so I got into, I guess, you know, a transition into becoming an activist in the in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. Um, Primarily, uh, I, I was inspired by the promise of universal healthcare, and with the you know with the campaign of 1992 with Bill Clinton, that was uh, one of the one of the uh, campaign promises, and it inspired me as a um, you know I think I was 19 or so at the time, and it inspired me to go out and canvas, um, do door to door promotion of of uh, his campaign um, primarily promoting the idea that we need health care for all because I didn't always have health care and so to me that was something that politicized me the idea of everybody having health care and then uh, I was quickly disillusioned with the process and so um, but I saw that you know uh, getting involved and, and getting directly involved in advocacy and uh, becoming more politicized as I learned you know about how Things worked, or you know, began to study and try to understand why we didn't have things like healthcare, you know, stuff like that. So it it transi- you know, it, it put me into a pipeline towards learning and then wanting to be part of a process of changing things. So I would say that was the starting point. Um, I got involved in border and migration, you uh, know, activism around the border uh, by the by 19, 1997, 1998. Um, and this was after a few years, you know, living near the border, um, being, you know, um, sort of in a place where I interacted with people and learned about their experiences uh, crossing the border or being, you know, a, a migrant or undocumented person. And, um, and then, you know, just uh, learning more about how not the Operation Gatekeeper, the border enforcement, Policy, how it actually worked, what it what was it was actually doing in terms of, you know, quote unquote enforcing uh, uh, migration. Understanding how NAFTA created this kind of this duality, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, because NAFTA and Operation Gatekeeper were both implemented at the same time, and NAFTA created the the rights of capital and money to cross borders, and Operation Gatekeeper enforced. the opposite for working class people and people in need of uh, refuge, which is basically building walls and creating military infrastructure. So I saw this develop. Um, and then, you know, uh, a thread connecting this was my family, uh, part of my family crossed the border from Mexico to the United States uh, in the early 20th century. And so while it's very distant, you know, it still led me to have an interest in and you know, sort of you know, recognizing what people today are going through, who like my ancestors, but also I got into teaching and combined my activism with an academic, research-based approach to learning, um, and so began to write about it. But um, as far as like activism today, I'm, I'm involved primarily with a group of other people who are trying to uh, work to close down. A for-profit uh, uh, immigration detention center that is here in San Diego County uh it's called core Civic, uh Otay Mesa Detention Center. And so it's part of this grotesque infrastructure of immigration enforcement that has been developed over the last few decades. It's a it's a for-profit company that um basically uh is a is a model of accumulating profit through uh Established to establish contract with the Department of Homeland Security to house migrants and refugees um, uh, in, in, you know, pretty pretty abhorrent um, conditions. And, and the, their business model is they actually they actually uh, get the, the detainees to work. They basically perform much of the staff function for little or no pay uh, per day. Um, it's common that they get paid a dollar an hour and so they're also like labor exploitation factories where um, which is part of the business model Um, and uh, you know uh, people will work for these pitiful wages and under these conditions because it factors into whether or not they get granted uh, a stay. They have to show that they're productive and giving back and this this is a one of the only ways for people who languish in these uh, detention centers can 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 show that they have a desire to uh, stay in the country and be productive. So this we're it's a collective called the Freedom All uh, well, coalition called the Freedom All Coalition, and so we're working locally to uh, to advocate and agitate against uh, the existence of these uh, migrant detention centers. Even here, and then there's groups and other. Parts of California, and because there's several of them up the of California, and we're collectively trying to get them shut down. Um, so that's that's the the main area of activism me do.
0: Wow, that's really important work, and I think grotesque and abhorrent is like an understatement uh, to describe these detention centers, the for-profit detention centers. And so, through your decades of putting in this work, uh, you've seen a lot. Heard a, lot of, heard a lot of campaign promises, as you mentioned. Uh, learned a lot along the way. And I just want to say I really appreciate you imparting that uh, that knowledge through your writing. And uh, in your book, The Border Crossed Us, uh, you cover an expansive history of essentially economic and immigration policy uh, between the U.S. and Mexico. And, and you lay out very well how the U.S. for 175 plus years... Has had its hands in the mexican economy and mexican politics whether through military force or economic control and and over many many decades of coercion and repression and colonialism neocolonialism uh the economic ties between the us and mexico has seen various developments like the bracero program and the border industrialization program and those developments Paired with the U.S. wanting to reassert its global dominance since the 1970s, especially and the rise of neoliberalism, that's all evolved into what you call the the migra state. Um, so, could you explain what the migror state is? And you've already kind of mentioned like the duality of uh, um, like immigration and, and NAFTA. Uh, so, yeah, could you explain a little more what the migror state is and like what the state sure. of the migror state is currently? Sure.
1: Well, like, yeah. So, I mean, my my framework of analysis starts with understanding the character of the state of the government, and um, in the United States, uh, uh, you know, short version is, you know, this 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 nation state was developed um, as a mechanism for capital accumulation um, in its er- in the earliest colonial phase, and so the but the United States has become the capitalist country par excellence, and um, its state, the the government that administers its laws, policies, its enforcement, etc., um, is directly tied into how the how capitalism functions and how capital is accumulated. and And so I start with the the idea that the state is not this kind of um, this kind of neutral body that um, is merely acts in reaction to its constituents, you know, uh, or the political parties, but it's but it's constructed in a way that reflects the hundreds of years of history of basically um, developing methods and mechanisms for um, for capital for uh, capital accumulation. So the migra state I combine these two words. Migra is a it's a slang term. Commonly used by Spanish speakers to describe the Border Patrol, ICE, and all other uh, immigration enforcers. So I combine these two terms to basically illustrate how, as a as a method of capital accumulation, as a way in which, um, you know, basically money can be generated through the exploitation of labor and, you know, and natural resources and you know, et cetera, but especially labor that the state has create, created more and more of a of an enforcement and repressive apparatus geared towards migrant labor and so this part of the state which is now i would i would say extends from free trade policy to um anti-drug policy to um my of course migration migration enforcement um and then you know um well, even across the border, the the growth of these agents, these armed agents, um, that are connected to and overlap over how this state process functions. So, um, so that has grown exponentially. So, um, so if you if you look at like an agency like the Border Patrol, the Border Patrol was originally developed. Um, in in the 1920s part of a a series of immigration comprehensive immigration policies that were established back then um the border patrol was was originally created to police migrants um and it was housed in the department of labor at the time because migrants were understood as a component of labor or migration was interconnected with um you know the need for labor and but you know so the, the point is is that that the enforcement mechanism of la migra has always been connected to the policing of migrant workers and so now you know we have especially since 2003 we have the department of homeland security which houses several of these agencies including ones that are that are relatively new like immigration and customs enforcement and um, and these two agencies have just grown each year i mean they you know they have 25,000 plus uh, ice agents um, you know, 20,000 plus border patrol agents, but it's just been growing, but not only in terms of n- numbers, but the the expanse of their enforcement um, purview. So we have ICE operating out of multiple countries. Now we have the border patrol operating throughout uh, from, from the U S to Central America. Uh, but then we also have like um, a lot of, uh, other types of enforcement technologies that are also sort of housed in profit-making, uh, you know, ways of extracting profit through this process, uh, including, um, you know, many defense industry companies that have contracts with the U.S. government. But not only that, but also like universities. A lot of different types of companies have contracts with ICE to provide technology, surveillance technology. Um, drone technology, you know, what, what, whatever it may be um, that factors into this enforcement. So so the state, the U.S. government uh, and which whichever political party is in control, I mean, they're not the same in terms of how they execute um, policies towards building and uh, arming the, the, the state, uh, but they both move in the same direction. So the state basically has created laws, policies, infrastructures, agencies, you know, that basically encompass how accumulation is, is, is how, you know, capital accumulation and profit is made through all of these processes. So by keeping millions of workers, not only without citizenship, but policed and under constant threat of arrest, detention, deportation, it the state is literally creating a separate work uh, you know, population of workers who are, who are kept in this in this state and and so they have you know less rights or no rights. they have uh, fewer guarantees and protections in the workplace. so so structurally it, it creates more and more of a, of a lower tier of workers who earn less who, and who have less recourse. and so they, they tend to be under more con- it creates the conditions where they can be more controlled in the workplace. they can be fired at will made precarious, employers the the law is so structured in favor of giving employers the ability to extract more from these workers that employers are also notorious for calling ice on their own workers if they try to organize a union or if they try to engage in any kind of collective bargaining um so so this is like a mechanism for making huge you know a much larger uh, uh margin of, of of uh accumulation out of the labor of these workers who now extend across the country you know uh immigrant and migrant and undocumented workers you know are uh situated across the economy um so this migra state that's like one one way of extracting another is by creating the duality of the border where capital can go and exploit workers in mexico or central america or the caribbean freely but the, the workers can't move freely and in fact keeps a certain segment of the population that might otherwise migrate keeps them situated in in these in their home countries where where at a place like Mexico or other parts of the region there's much more infra- infrastructure of union repression and union disaggregation and so wages are lower so capital has captive populations of workers across the border exploits there it can move sections of production across the border which is common to get the cheapest, you know, to have aspects of production uh, that that are more mobile or that can be done more easily and cost-effectively uh, situated across the border. And so you have these, you know, assembly lines or, you know, the popular term supply chain. So, and then you have the the, the other end of that pipeline, you know, the enforcement, like I already mentioned, the uh, housing, thousands of... of migrants and refugees and detention centers, um, you know, all of the technology of surveillance, you know, so so all along this route, we're seeing ways in which profit, you know, exploitation creates higher rates of accumulation and higher rates of profit. Um, so yeah, so that's a more of a descriptive look at what, you know, what I refer to as the legal state. And it, it, it just goes one direction. It just gets more and more more and more is invested into it, more and more of the sort of political worldview of you know the the, the US political the US ruling class or political class is, is geared towards understanding that this is a major pillar of how capitalism now works, how functions. And so it can't it can't go the other way, right? Um in my opinion. So it can only go towards more exploitation, more um ways of squeezing more out of out of all of the stages of production.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that description. And to that point that it can only go one way, um, the North American Leaders Summit was on January 10th in Mexico City, uh, where Biden and Trudeau met with the uh, the Mexican president, um, Amlo, I think is his nickname. Um, and with that understanding of the Migro state that it's, you know, these uh, border enforcement agencies and technologies are expanding and expanding to facilitate more and more capital accumulation. I think we can reasonably predict what will be the outcome of that summit, which was barely a blip on mainstream media, it seems like. Uh, but it's really important to discuss what happened there. Um, there Biden especially was calling to deepen relations uh, in the Western Hemisphere between the U.S., Canada and Mexico. And to do that, they would strengthen supply chains and tackle immigration, which is actually at odds with one another, as you were pointing to. So what can we expect to happen from uh, from what Biden was calling for in that summit?
1: Um, not much. Um, I mean, if you, like, I, I followed it pretty closely um, and uh, there's a lot of rhetoric, but for the most part, there was no substantive break or change from existing policy. So it's, it's strengthening my, uh, you know, from the US side, the goal was to strengthen um uh mechanisms you know to continue to conduct the failing war on drugs um to create more infrastructure for controlled migration um you know and part of it is deepening the you know what i characterize as a neo-colonial or semi-colonial relationship with mexico both the united states and canada have tremendous investments in mexico Um, and not not the other way around. Um, and so um, part of part of the sort of deepening is to get um, more access to more important mineral resources that Mexico has, um, especially uh, in in the con. Well, let me let me go back and say a, a major factor that a contextual factor in which this is taking place is increasing competition and tension between the United States the European Union China you know in uh, Japan it's essentially uh, 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 an intensifying sort of global stage where trade you know decoupling is happening uh, for various reasons um, much much of it stemming from the last economic crisis and and the weakening of the global global system and more regionalization, but also, uh, you know, this idea of rising, China rising and and beginning, not beginning, but expanding its its investments around the world and its model of, of, you know, uh, increasing capital accumulation, increasing profit inflows, but also strengthening its geopolitical hand um, to get more leverage, uh, you know, against the United States. So this is the context. I would say um and then there are other factors but basically deepening uh those things I've already mentioned uh the sort of uh, war on drugs and, and um, migration control and so like you know for instance uh uh they want more mining rights I mean part part of the u.s approach is more mining rights um getting into some specifics like rare earth minerals that uh, lithium, things like that, that, you know, um, are very important for the sort of current configuration of capital investments, you know, like uh, all the technologies uh, associated with cell phones and things like that. So China has a significant advantage in terms of of uh, its access to, to these minerals. The United States and Canada want more access in Mexico, so they're pushing for that. They want to build, they want to, combine um develop investment strategies for building more uh, computer chip and semiconductor uh, factories in competition with with china so it, a lot of it is taped, a lot of this is shaped by the sort of like increasing global competition and and trade conflict between these different centers and the united states essentially pushing to extract more from its exi- from its existing relationship from Amlo's point of view, it, you know, Amlo is a different, a uh, little bit of a, a different type of precedent than Mexico has had um, for some time, um, and so he wants to carve out. He's, he has more of a, I guess you could say, a, a kind of a nationalist slant um, to his politics. He comes from an older guard of of, of politicians uh, associated with the, the the longtime ruling party, the PRI party who basically combined aspects of national development with partnering with foreign capital and international capital. And so he's a kind of um, version of this where he's trying to develop his own extractivist plans to, to utilize Mexico's uh, natural resource wealth. He has his own developmental project like building this train that goes from Mexico City through the coast of uh, the Yucatan. So he's and he and he's trying to use Mexico's oil wealth a little bit more stubbornly um, uh, than the United States likes and Canada likes because you know Mexico is a major oil producer and he's there's been some tension and conflict there because he's closed parts of the energy market um, and refocused that towards state exploitation of, of oil of oil wealth although much of the market is still open to international capital he's been moving in one in in a more a direction of, of controlling and curtailing how how much foreign capital can invest in this important industry and so so this is also part of the backdrop of this of this uh, summit is like you know so there's these global factors there's these local factors but it's not it's nothing that uh, it there's nothing substantial in it that doesn't just reflect a you know a kind of Deepening of the, of the existing, you know, relationships and infrastructures that already exist. Um, Amlo wanted uh, basically, uh, and he's been saying this since the beginning of his um, tenure as, as president. He's been saying that he he wants to see more uh, investment in southern Mexico and and into Central America. Uh, he's he counterposes that to um, well, he doesn't counterpose it, but he emphasizes that for 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 the Mexican population that um, more jobs need to be created, right? And in uh, that way there'll be less migration up to the United States. So he's he's pushed these kinds of developmentalist projects, but in reality um, he doesn't he doesn't actually deviate very uh, very significantly from previous presidents in terms of just you know. Uh, much how much like the uh, Mexican economy is an extension of the U.S. economy in many ways, so too is border enforcement policy and migration policy. And so, um, operating through something called the uh, the Plan Merida, which was established in 2005 2006, it basically is a a security agreement in which the United States makes periodic um, cash deposits into the Mexican government to build its um, its police forces. To, to curtail migration to it to to stop or control uh people coming from central america so in, in many ways he's just gone along with um working with primarily with uh the united states and deepening these you know deepening the, these policies but um nothing real substantial in terms of you know what what he pressed that that was new or or Really realizable. I mean, the United States um, does not have an interest in keeping migrants out, <laughs> um, and their their investment, uh, the people, you know, investors coming from the United States to Mexico aren't, aren't looking for charitable work or humanitarian work. They're looking um, for ways to make money. So, um, so I think I think it, you know, in the end, it's kind of a show of solidarity and unity at a time when there's, you know, great, you know tension and conflict with other parts of the world uh there's the disruption associated with the, the war in the ukraine um there's uh the economic factors the uh you know the, the fact that we're you know heading into a recession if not already in one and um there's going to be stresses and strains on these relationships you know and so it's a map reaffirmation of working together through these t- troubled times but it really just represents the maintenance
0: of those guys. That makes sense. Just uh, you know, same old rhetoric, business as usual, which is resource extraction and labor exploitation. So we we can expect more of the same, but more and worse and worse is what you're saying. So obviously, that spells bad news for undocumented uh, migrant workers. And other than the fact that everyone should be opposed to a stricter immigration policy, simply because it's just inhumane. Explain how that's bad for all workers.
1: Well, the the migra state, or I also refer to this as the bordering of capitalism, like what's happening in terms of creating tiered and structured and controlled labor markets in North America is, you know, it's it's very much a, a, an innovation in capital accumulation and in, in exploitation in cap, for capital accumulation or profit. making. So, um, so, in the in the book, you know, I look at a, a lot of economic research going back uh, several decades, and uh, I point out looking at you know uh, multiple studies that showed that uh, being undocumented in the late set, you know, in the late set by the late 70s, uh, did not have a significant impact on wage comparisons with U.S. born workers. So, in other words. Without without the kind of direct criminalization the creating of these infrastructures of policing and controlling undocumented workers w- without that wages tended to be in parity um with each increase in enforcement we see wage disparity so um and then in the and so I I also look at other types of research showing how uh in the starting in the late 70s there was a significant labor activism amongst Mexican migrant workers across, uh, especially across the Southwest, in different industries, and and this um, this led to a division in organized labor in the United States. Um, for a long time, much of organized labor had an anti-immigrant position that you know they're taking our jobs position, and so they lined up with the most reactionary policies to build, you know, to 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 Exclude or prevent migration, but um, organized labor had had been going through a crisis. It still is in a deep crisis, but and but the growth of an undocumented immigrant worker population across industries that were actually self-organizing, um, beginning to create unions and making making it clear that you know that they were more were were interested in, in union uh, organization and affiliation, it led to sectors of organized labor breaking from the AFL-CIO's you know, longstanding position and basically beginning to invest in supporting those workers, organizing, helping the organize, uh, et cetera. And so it, it led to uh, an increase in unionization amongst those populations. So when organized labor was going down in terms of overall representation, um, it was getting a shot in the arm in terms of tens of thousands of uh, immigrant workers joining. So this led to a process in which organized labor helped facilitate and negotiate an amnesty, uh, you know, a legalization. And that led to a huge spike in in the numbers of organized labor from this population. And what happened was, again, the the study shows wages went up. As soon as people got um, citizenship, I mean, so the wages were in parity, but they started to go down, and the amnesty is in, is, is in the – it really happens in the late 80s. And so with amnesty, we start to see wages go up because people can now negotiate. There's there's no repercussions from their employers, et cetera. And so amnesty became a major um, boost um, for organized labor, Um all work, when when the lowest wages across any industry, the lowest threshold of wages go up in any industry, all wages go up, it's the same concept behind them raising the minimum wage. It it pushes the other, ultimately it leads to conditions where other wages rise, uh, rise in uh, proportionality. And so, so this had a big impact on wages, on unionization. And so I document in the book how the employers began to put a lot of pressure on um, really it was uh, Clinton and you know the the, the ruling administrations, the Clinton administration and the Bush administration after that to to not do another amnesty, no more amnesty. Um and so I document these discussions that were happening through the business press, through public, you know, political pronouncements, through laws and things like that. And basically there there was a a shutting down of this idea that we're we're gonna have any more mass legalization because it's not good for our, uh it's not good for the employer side so um so with enforcement only we we, we see uh, again this re restructuring the widening wage gap so it, the empirical evidence shows that enforcement leads to greater profit um, free trade without free people it means extending the 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 rights of capital to move where it can find the lowest wages, but not allow workers to move find higher wages, right? So it keeps contained workers. Um, and anytime the threat the wage threshold goes down, it pulls wages down. Um, and we know that what U.S. wages have been stagnant, you know, um, not rising, um, you know, even in even in proportion to inflation it's not just because of that but that's a that's a you know that that's a contributing factor because so much of work now is divided between populations of workers within borders and across borders like you know through the supply chains and whatnot so these, these are some examples of how empirically we can see that enforcement creates it, it depresses the standard of living lowers wages on the one side creates more capital and more Profitable extraction. So, like right now where I live in San Diego, there's an Amazon just built a, a fulfillment center. So I'm in the southeast part of the county, about eight minutes drive from where I'm at. And it's a massive 21st century, you know, robotics and all, you know, all these, all these kinds of uh, new. New technologies and it's a Amazon fulfillment center. The the workers there are tiered. Most of the workers that do on the the warehouse work are Mexican workers. The the you know the college educated technical uh, staff are you know um, you know for the most part U.S. born workers. And when I say Mexican, they most of them live in on, in Tijuana and they cross the border to work. And then um and then not lying, not exaggerating. Two miles south, across the U.S.-Mexico border, they built another fulfillment center, um, and that's also, of course, you know, Mexican workers. Although some some of the technical staff can cross the border from the U.S. So um, the difference is that at the fulfillment center, they pay eighteen dollars an hour on in the U.S. side, and in Mexico, they pay one dollar. And they built the these Amazon. Um, they built them in, in proximity to each other so that they can move goods and things like that freely because there's a. They built it on an axis where there's a border crossing right between it, right between the two, and so they can move goods freely to fulfill, you know, um, customer, you know, customer demand. Um, but the workers can't move freely. Only some can cross the border to work, and um, they pay them much less. And and you know, so this this idea of like. Being able to use the the border as a way to keep wages, you know, as as you know, as low as possible, because you know workers have to cross the border, um, you know, and then they get a, a significant wage boost if they if they can do that. If they can't cross the border, they get paid less. Um, but this, you know, and and there's more to the story. The the uh, Amazon actually paid a lot of money into the political. Uh, account into paid a lot of money in terms of um uh political contributions to the local government um San Diego City Council and the, you know the mayor's office uh a, a few years back in in lieu of building these these fulfillment centers they paid them they you know they made contributions and whatnot and and there was like a there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on with with the politics of this but what came out of it was uh, they, the San Diego the City Council and the mayor's office uh, invested, a, made a $200 million investment to create more lanes, you know, at this particular crossing. And so we have two crossings. We have the San Isidro crossing, which is mainly the main pedestrian and car crossing. And then we have the Otay Mesa, which I've already mentioned has the same name of the detention center right there, but that's a commercial crossing, So it most it's where trucks and cargo cross. And so they they made in the, in the in the period right before Amazon opened these um, fulfillment centers, they they use taxpayer money to expand the lanes and and things like that for commerce. So um, so it's like it's commerce moves more freely. People have to wait in these long exaggerated you know a, a line process. Yeah. So it's like the whole the whole sort of the whole space you know is, is used in different ways by capital to take advantage of the of the lowest wages possible so um, they're trying to well there 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 has been an effort to organize a union at the at the amazon facility um, and so uh, from an amazon standpoint if they need to shut down you know they may if I, I wouldn't put it past it, but if they can't block a union they could shut it down right um, And they could shift production uh, as much as they can across the border or at least use the threat of doing that as a way to um, keep wages you know keep the union out, et cetera. So there's lots of different ways in which this um, tiered and structured these tiered and structured labor markets used bought, using the border and illegalization, and the inability of people to move freely to create maximum exploitation, and it affects all workers. So, um, and it and it's systematic, right? It's not just a, a series of choices between different groups of workers. It's structured so that people have to, you know, that, you know, they can only exist in, in these spaces and under uh, circumstances of much more direct control. So, uh, so empirically, we've seen all wages go down in relationship to the breeding of these Uh, Structured and controlled labor market within and across borders.
0: That's insane that just a few miles difference with just it just happens to have a border in between. There could be that much of a wage difference. That's insane. And like you were saying, like these corporations are trying to accumulate as much capital as possible. So, like, that necessitates keeping wages as low as possible. So, like, there's no way they would allow, uh, a cross border union, or even just a union on one side of the border, and like we've seen that with Starbucks recently, a bunch of Starbucks stores were closed, and that's just in the U.S. So this is obviously all bad news. What's what's the exit strategy for the working class? What does a movement against borders look like? Is it just unionizing, or is there more layers to it?
1: That's a that's a good question. So um, so it's it we have to look at the actors and their interests and their and what they can do to change things right so right now in mexico there is a a kind of an upstart union movement operating through the nodes of u.s capital and international capital investment what i mean by that is um there's a there's a union movement in the maquiladoras um, concentrated right now in the state of Tamaulipas in the um the matamoros uh uh, the city of Matamoros where there's a high-density concentration of, of um, top-tier kind of uh, maquiladoras. I mean, you're making like auto, making different parts of cars that end up in GM and Ford and, and other cars. Um, and there's there's been a series, over the last few years, there's been a series of strikes. Um, um, and out of that, they're trying to build a union. And in, in, the, in the auto production industry, um, so Mexico has like the fourth or fifth largest auto industry in the world. It's not Mexican, it's foreign capital trying to produce, you know, producing cars there to then ship them into the U S to, to be sold in the U S for the most part. Um, and there's another upstart kind of, um, union, uh, movement. And that's, you know, having, that's racking up some successes, organizing in GM plant. They're trying to organize in a Mazda plant right now. And, you know, under Mexican conditions, it's very difficult. There's a lot of layers of, of opposition to union, you know, to, to authentic unionization, and this is why it's so beneficial for U.S. capital, right? Um, it's because there's a large workforce um, that with with very low wages and and you know a, a lot of skilled workers, um, you know. So so part of part of it is that Mexican workers have been showing the way um, in terms of like how, how to overcome, you know, these c- controlled and regulated labor markets and, and basically build, trying to build unions that can then advocate for, you know, higher wages. Um, and ultimately, right. The, the idea is, is that a worker in a GM plant in Guanajuato, Mexico making chassis gets paid the same amount as a worker in, you know, Detroit or Chattanooga, Tennessee, making the same chassis. Um, during the GM's auto strike of, 19, of 2019, when uh, United Auto Workers shut down the GM plants, part of the reason that they went on strike was to prevent uh, to, a threat from GM to move an, another plant into Mexico, to shut down the U.S. plant moving into Mexico, and amongst other things, amongst other you know uh, attacks on the wages and working conditions of uh, United Auto Workers. Well, Mex- this was at a, the same union that's now scoring some victories. Was already trying to organize in a GM plant, and they were getting fired because GM works with these. They have fake un- basically they have a type of fake union model in Mexico, which is basically in the service of the company, and that's an arrangement that every U.S. capital, major U.S. capital uh, capitalist investor, you know, uh, essentially negotiates with. And so um, they were already trying to organize this plant of General Motors, and General Motors was basically saying, "We're going to move more production here, and if and if you go on strike, we're going to relocate more actual production to the GM plants in Mexico." Well, those workers made public pronouncements calling for the United Auto Workers to support and make and to support them in going on strike in solidarity with U.S. and Canadian auto workers, and they they made uh, public pronouncement saying, you know, we, we don't want to be, we don't want to be used by the company to to break strike, you know, to break a strike. We don't want to be, we don't want to see that, you know, uh, the investment shift, we, you know, we stand in solidarity, et cetera. So they were making very conscious uh, demands, um, you know, showing that, you know, if you actually shut down U S Canadian and Mexican auto production, uh, GM auto production, you could bring the company to its needs because that their model is to be able to move production where wages are, you know, are, are the lowest and et cetera. And you know, Mexico. A lot, a lot of people don't understand that like half of the North North American auto workforce is in Mexico. This is a massive population of workers. So, so if you shut down, if G, if the United Auto Workers decided, you know, we're going to actually fight and we're going to we're going to fight to win you shut down auto production it could create the basis for expanding unionization in the the uaw into mexico and it could create the conditions where you could begin to advocate equal work for equal you know equal equal pay for equal work so that's one dimension in in the united states um labor leaders some labor some unions have played a role in supporting a, a call for um Another legalization, which basically is is another factor that weakens the ability of capital to use the borders to create these tiered structures. Um, There was a political showdown in early, uh, what was it, 2019, no, 2018, um, between, I forget, it's a little hazy, but it's in the book, um, where... um, the Trump administration was basically refusing to sign off on a, on a federal budget if it didn't include money for the border wall and Sarah Nelson, the president of the, uh, the flight attendants union, um, you know, whose workers operate throughout airports across the country, uh, threatened that if Trump didn't, um, and, and the withholding of the budget was harming, you know, uh, federal aviation workers, uh, or, you know, Federal aviation workers and then flight attendants and, and others associated with the airline, um, because it was disrupting um, their ability to work uh, without, you know, all the paid staff and things like that. So he he said, if you don't um, if you don't end your this impasse and allow for the budget to move forward without the money for your border wall, we're going to go on strike. We're going to shut down the airlines. And after several weeks of of Trump, the Trump administration hardlining it. That one threat of shutting down the airlines, he folded, by, within the next twelve hours, within you know by the next morning, he, he signed it. Um, and so the that that gives an example of how organized labor, I mean, has the power to basically create opposition to the to the the meager the meager state, right? So there's there's all these different ways. Then there's the role of the left, right? Um, so in working in conjunction with with you know these efforts building solidarity and whatnot. But um, in 2018, uh, there was a movement across this country called Occupy ICE, where um, uh, in opposition to some of Trump's you know, uh, policies, they built um, these campaigns to basically blockade ICE. In, uh, uh, centers where they bring um and, and process and detain uh, undocumented people they basically sh- shut them down in several parts of the country and made them in- inoperable and in and of itself it didn't lead to rad- you know the sort of radical change but if that were to happen in conjunction with other types of um actions taken by by workers uh you know these these could have significant uh impact but basically it's going to take it's going to take an anti it's going to take a movement of workers to, sh- to, to be willing to shut down go on strike and make demands for you know equal pay but also political demands for equal rights it's going to take um you know an anti-capitalist orientation un- understanding and orientation to build these kind of movements as well because uh it's not just who's it's not just associated with which p- uh, politician or which party is in power because in fact you know the expansion of the migrant state has in 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 practice been it's increased more under democrats even though democrats are the ones that at the at the now at the beginning of every political cycle promise that they're going to have a legalization or do something stop deportation and they they end up doing the opposite like biden things have gotten significantly worse uh for migrants under under biden um uh you know in not uh, not in terms of like Trump was cruel and Trump did cruel things but um but the Biden administration has a more responsible and thoughtful way of of carrying out the policies of uh, of Trump you know in in a way that they're more successful and in a way that mute a lot of the people
0: on the liberal left
1: right so so right now, so after Biden was elected you know he 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 ran on opposing Trump's. Policies and undoing them, and then he ended up institutionalizing most of them. You know, so so there has to be political movements that understand the limitations of electoral politics as a means of, of transforming, um, you know, or or upending or you know undoing the the migra state. Uh, it has to be you know a variety of factors, but but essentially anything that strengthens the working class. Transnational working class over capital is a step towards dis- dismantling that, you know. And you know, I I don't think at the end of the day I'm not I'm not sure you know how capitalism could be sustained without this, you know. Um, that, that's how expansive and important it is, and that's why it's happening across the world. What this model, you know, it has its very variations around the world. Um. So so I'm you know I'm I'm an anti-capitalist. I mean I I, I don't. I don't think we can we can have a, a you know uh, a situation where rights and wages and working conditions can all be equalized without without you know without confronting and, and dismantling the capitalist system. But I think you know I think there are steps that are already showing how the working class on both sides of the border is, is becoming more aware of how their interests and well-being you know is interconnected and but it but it there needs to be a much more a a much larger conscious element which is making these political arguments you know in the you know in in as many public spaces as possible in unions in in protests in different types of actions because because the 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 discourse is so narrow in official politics that that you know, that there's no alternative, basically there's no alternative presented. It's only who can be, who can be harder on immigration, who can build a bigger border wall, who, you know, who, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it has to come from, you know, it has to come from um, the, the the class struggle itself.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, what you've expressed at the core is that, you know, workers have a lot of power and folks on, both sides of the border on any and you know wherever you are at like everyone needs to organize together and threaten profits at the very least to you know to make their demands happen and i think you've laid a really good path for folks to get started and i hope someday our paths cross again and uh thanks again for your time and and helping us imagine what a world without borders could look like
1: my pleasure it's great to be here frank have this discussion